Welcome, and let's first talk compliance. I'm Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager at First Healthcare Compliance. Thanks for tuning in. You can follow First Healthcare Compliance on Twitter at FirstHCC or on Facebook and Instagram at First Healthcare Compliance or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. On today's episode, we're speaking with Warren Cook, co-founder of Symbian's HR, an HR consulting partner that uses direct experience and best practices for solving business challenges about the topic of got diversity, get inclusion, and the pending FLSA changes. We will review building an inclusive workforce through application of strategies and out-of-the-box thinking that creates competitive advantage. We will dismiss myths and explore the facts and provide guidance you can use today. We will also briefly cover the pending proposed changes in the FLSA that may impact your business. We'll also talk about understanding what diversity is and what it is not, learn strategies to build a culture of inclusion, to create a competitive advantage, and enhance engagement, and learn what the pending FLSA changes are and how this might impact your business. So Warren, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you. Let's get started. Diversity and inclusion appear to be a very relevant topic in recent years. Why do you think that is? Well, it could be a lot of different things, but first and foremost, we have things like the Me Too movement that's going on. We have a lot of organizational impact regulations that are coming through legislation. Uh, We have changes in uh, Delaware and other states related to um, harassment. We have changes in the workplace to compensation practices, all that is leaving organizations wondering how to how to maximize their workforce and how to address uh, these changes. And one of the strategies that have been implemented for a number of years now is diversity inclusion. Um, and it's relevant because organizations that can recognize that they already have a diverse workforce and they already have a diverse lens and perspectives are focusing the inclusion part so that they can create a competitive advantage by engaging their workforce Uh, leveraging the capabilities of their workforce and breaking down barriers between uh, different generations and different types of um, backgrounds and experiences of their workforce. So it's relevant because uh, businesses are recognizing that it can become competitive uh, for them to go down this path of building an inclusive culture. So how do you convince the leadership of a company to become inclusive? Great question. Um, really, it's, it's a, a, a several things that have to take place. And the first is, is the individual that's looking to do that, who's looking to convince leadership to make this change, has to become a catalyst and an agent for change by uh, getting some of the facts around uh, diversity and inclusion, and then leveraging those facts to influence uh, the thinking and the perspectives of that leadership team. For example, one of the problems with diversity and inclusion is the belief of uh, an organization has to go out and get uh, diversity. And the reason why we, we we talk about having diversity already, that you've got diversity, is every organization already has it. You know, the diversity is defined as the condition of having or or, or being different in a, in a workforce or the state of being diverse. And the organization is already diverse. Uh, and so it's influencing that leadership by talking to them about what inclusion means and how you can be inclusive with the people in the workforce. And so it's an education process and it's demonstrating through small wins by taking the area that you already influence of your team 
or your group or your department and implementing inclusive strategies that then show uh, positive returns in engagement and trust and retention. And that results in leadership slowly paying more and more attention to those actions and behaviors. And then the conversations can get more comprehensive and more strategic on how you uh, roll that out to more of the organization that you're working with. But are you implying when we hire people that we can ignore their diversity? So no, not at all. I mean, uh, organizations often uh, are hung up on uh, past practices around affirmative action, which is uh, not the same as diversity and inclusion. Uh, federal contractors are uh, under strict regulations that obligate them to have affirmative action programs, which creates some of the uh, myths and, and, and misunderstood characteristics of what a business has to do around diversity and inclusion. And so when you eliminate the concept of quotas and you eliminate the concept of having to hire uh, race or gender or ethnicity, and you truly focus on what are the valuable assets that that individual brings in, um, you're not ignoring diversity, you're actually embracing it, but in a different manner. So rather than just saying, oh, we need more minorities in our workplace and let's make sure as we're interviewing people, we look for those who are minorities. Instead, you're looking at every individual as a human being for their qualifications and then leveraging their life experiences and their diverse background of experience, work, industry, technology to add value to your organization. So it's not about you ignoring it, it's about you embracing it in a different light, in a different lens, and thinking about inclusion versus just the term diversity. Because again, the workforce is already diverse. Uh, it's a matter of who is in your organization uh, today and how do you leverage the variety of capabilities and skill sets they have to create a competitive advantage in the way you sell your products or services to your customers uh, and clients. How long does it take to create an inclusive culture? Great question. Um, there's no definitive answer to that. I mean, the, a culture is something that has to permeate and continue on in your workforce uh, for, for, you know, as long as your workforce exists. Changing culture is difficult. We always hear about, you know, organizations asking somebody in the company, why do you do that? And they say, because we've always done it that way. And that's kind of the same for diversity and inclusion. If they've gone down the path of just being what they think is compliant and bringing in diverse people, they're not inclusive at all. And so it could take six months or a year just to influence enough members of the management team or leadership or your peers uh, to recognize the value of being more inclusive, breaking down silos, breaking down barriers. But inclusion has to permeate through all aspects of the business. It can't be a siloed initiative where, look, we'll hire a DNI person and they'll go and do their thing and the rest of the business keeps doing what they're doing. You truly have to blend it together. And that could take years to slowly evolve a culture that's existed, especially since a lot of people may feel threatened in opening up the opportunity to allow others to talk or comment or participate in meetings or activities that historically they were prohibited to. For example, if you had a leadership team who uh, predominantly the, the people who were involved with diversity and inclusion were all the management team and you never included line staff or production supervisors or managers or operations, um, if you didn't bring those folks together, the idea of allowing them to be part of the conversation can be scary. But the strategy really is to leverage what they bring to the table so they're more engaged, that the inclusion and collaboration is happening. And overall, everybody is working towards the success of the business. And that's what creates that competitive advantage, that you're leveraging the ideas of everybody in the workforce uh, to differentiate and do better, more productive, more successfully uh, than the competition. 
That sounds good, but how do you recommend for organizations that have a leadership who fail to support this inclusive culture? How do you recommend that the leadership gets gets on board, or how do you how do you do that? Well, uh, some people, when they come to me and talk about that, I tell them you need to change your your organization. Uh, if you really are a champion of change and you you passionately believe in this, and the organization is unwilling to uh, make a movement, it it may be a, a uh, stunting point for your career, and and you certainly want to focus on that. But in in just focusing on the question of how do you overcome it in a way, um, it's education and repeating that. It's recognizing that it's an evolution of change. It's not a revolution, and so you don't want to you know make a recommendation say you need to do this and walk away. You really need to build a a case for it. And if you're not used to building a business case. Uh, this is something you really want to focus on with an inclusion uh, strategy. You want to be able to go to management and demonstrate to them why it's important to do this. What are the benefits? What are the pros and cons? What are the risks of not doing this? Uh, what do they lose or what's negatively impacted? So, you know, from a building a business case, um, our listeners should think about, you know, what is the talent acquisition benefits of an inclusive environment? Uh, what is the social uh, responsibility in the public's eye of how the organization operates? How about retention and training? Um, you know, you're going to retain more engaged and trusted employees when they feel like it's an inclusive environment. Uh, you're going to have more productivity. You're going to have more create creativity and innovation. Um, you're able to leverage the um, diversity of your workforce through an inclusive inclusive culture to better understand your customers and your clients and your strategic partners in the industry. So. Um, there is a strong business case and you can put dollars and cents uh, through an ROI analysis of an inclusion a program and strategy. If we couldn't put ROI to inclusion, you wouldn't see all these Fortune 50 and Fortune 100 companies going down this path to really committing to an inclusive environment. Even if you look at commercials today and advertisements, they are all extremely inclusive, not just diverse, but they're demonstrating inclusion of different types of people to solve problems. And so if the leadership isn't understanding that, try to have some small wins. Try to do it on your own in the in the scope of influence you have and then bring those successes uh, to leadership, asking for their support to kind of expand it in a larger scale. Is there really an opportunity to demonstrate this ROI with inclusion? It can be challenging because inclusion often, D&I often falls into the scope of human resources or human resources area or department in an organization. And historically, HR is not viewed as a profit center, neither is accounting and some of the other areas, right? So what happens is you have to be able to show, first and foremost, that you understand the impact of activities with the employees in the workforce on the business. If you can't demonstrate why a good benefits program helps with ROI, if you can't demonstrate why good training programs or a good communication, engagement surveys, if you can't demonstrate all the activities that are involved in talent acquisition, maintaining development, performance management, how those generate value for the business, it's gonna be even more challenging to show how inclusion impacts the business. But it's very possible because once you start thinking about these activities in a different light, it's not a profit center, but uh, reducing turnover, there's a number you can put to that. And increasing the speed of which talent is acquired, you can put a number to that. Um, productivity improvements, you can put a number to that. Just a, a culture of um, uh, engagement where people collaborate and they work well together and they're more efficient. You can put numbers to those things. So ROI is very attainable, but it really sometimes changes 
uh, the responsibility of the person trying to lead this initiative or the catalyst for this change to think about all these activities in business case form, like I mentioned, that they have to be able to say, what is this going to do for the business? Because if it's not going to support the success and growth and profitability of the business, you shouldn't be doing it. But at the same time, you need to recognize that you have to dig a little uh, harder into the work and the research you're doing and compare current state to future state. So when you say, here's where we are today to the leadership team, here's where we want to be, and here's the value of making these changes, just like you would with anything else you put in place for a change in a change agent in the organization, you can demonstrate the impact there. And when you start thinking about that, you'll start thinking about all your activities with ROI for the business and you'll you'll gain momentum. But it is, you know, expect a lot of no's, expect a lot of rejection while you're building this case and while you're proving it with the people that you can influence. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to First Talk Compliance, and my guest today is Warren Cook, co-founder of Symbionts HR. Regarding the FLSA, why can't we just pay all our employees more than the salary threshold and be done with this? Ah, Catherine, great question. So this is regarding the proposed changes that are coming, and it's making a lot of organizations nervous about how to move forward and what to do. And the predominant change in the regulations is a threshold as far as how much you have to pay somebody in order to classify them as exempt, which means there's not going to be any overtime or minimum wage paid to that individual. Could, and actually, Warren, could you give us a little bit more background to that? Sure. Um, okay. Sure. In in uh, in March uh, of 2019, we had uh, the Department of Labor issued uh, a proposed rule change to the uh, Fair Labor Standards Act. And uh, the significant changes that are going to be recommended or that are proposed right now impact one of the three prong tests related to how an organization exempts an employee from minimum wage and overtime. The, the primary focus is on the salary threshold. For many years, threshold has been $455 a week as far as whether or not someone earning over that would be exempt from overtime and minimum wage. This is being proposed to change. The changes are proposed to go in effect in January of 2020. Uh, and right now, the uh, proposed rule is going through the legislative process, and it's an open comment period, which means the public can comment uh, until May of 2019. What's happening is that organizations are seeing these communications and seeing these postings and um, uh, uh, notices that are coming out and immediately feel that they can solve the problem by simply paying people in their workforce more money. Uh, and if we pay them as much as the salary threshold or minimum threshold is, we avoid any problems. There are significant problems with that. And, and as you mentioned, a lot of people do just wonder, let's just pay them more. Well, in 2016, these rules started to come out and initially were launched under the Obama administration. And now it's being uh, represented under the Trump administration. Um, but they just jumped and paid their employees uh, the, the former recommended salary of forty six thousand. Uh, which never happened. Uh, there were judgments and pauses and injunctions put in place. And so a lot of employers paid a lot of money out of pocket to employees and no change even happened. Uh, and even if the change did happen at that level, they failed to recognize other aspects of the law. So the reason you don't just jump and pay the employees differently is because you first need to determine, have you classified them properly based on the duties test? Because if you do not meet the salary threshold, then you don't even have to worry about the duties test because you have to pay them as a non-exempt employee and they're eligible for the minimum wage and overtime. But if they do meet this new $35,000 308 
uh, limit that they're proposing, you still have to determine whether or not they meet the duties test as an administrative, executive, professional, uh, uh, individual position. And so failing to do that means that you may pay the person more money, still misclassify them, and then end up owing back wages or penalties for record keeping violations or just misclassification. So I would urge caution and just changing your pay practices and instead evaluate and analyze these positions effectively to determine whether or not one, is it qualifying as exempt or not? And two, do you want to make them exempt or not? And we could spend hours talking about whether or not a company should make the person exempt, but it is really a business by business, case by case decision based on the industry, the, the work, the services they provide. Um, but don't move forward with just making pay changes without considering why you're making those changes. Great advice. Thank you. Thanks for the, for the background on that as well. Communication seems to be key to avoid lawsuits in regards to FLSA. So how far back can employers be sued? And what do you recommend regarding the communication for the workforce? Well, it's a scary situation because uh, and a great question, because, you know, the government can go back two years uh, of your pay practices. So if you are just today realizing, oops, I misclassified my, my employees, what's my risk and liability here? Uh, the risk is two years back for every employee. If you get audited uh, or if there's a lawsuit filed, they're going to look at not just the one person. They're going to look at all of your employees, find out who's been misclassified. And then you run the risk of record keeping violations and damages. Uh, back wages and damages and potentially minimum wage state or federal and damages. Uh, so they go back two years in their uh, review. If they believe the activities were willful and willful doesn't mean you willfully um, didn't pay. It's more about that you willfully fail to do the right things to pay the uh, employees properly. And so that goes back three years. So the actual risk for an employer today is three years uh, potentially for back wages and damages and, and record-keeping violations. Um, the good news is that you want to start looking forward and you want to start making these changes and analysis as quickly as possible. But the employees often catch wind of these changes, right? Catherine, <laughs> like, they pay attention. Right. They know what's going on, right? So what happens is that if you don't communicate effectively, if you don't have a communication strategy to help the employees look forward and join the employer on this journey to achieve compliance and benefit everyone, they immediately start looking backwards and saying, huh, I saw something online, I saw something in the news, I heard from a friend, maybe I should just sue you. And the crazy part about all this, Catherine, is it costs nothing to sue the employer. The individual can simply go to the Department of Labor and say, I think I've been paid wrong and file a claim. And the Department of Labor will investigate and research it it almost is that easy. Now they have to fill out forms and, and give some information, but uh, it doesn't cost them anything. And so employers really need to take this seriously. When you're communicating to the workforce, uh, the most important thing is to engage them. How about be inclusive, right? Include them in the fact that you're going to go through an analysis, you're going to go through a review period, and you're going to work with them to identify effectively and compliantly their job descriptions. You're going to perform a comprehensive job analysis. And then we'll be able to determine what the compensation practices are going forward, letting them know that for the most part, people are not going to lose money. In most situations, people either make the same or make more money, because if someone ends up earning overtime, employers generally aren't recommended to cut their pay rate and then pay them overtime. 
Uh, instead, it's whatever you're paying them now, you owe them for a time and a half above that. So making sure the employee is engaged and looking forward and thinking about the positive impacts uh, of these changes versus not engaging the employee, not being as transparent as, as you should be or need to be uh, about changes coming, they'll start looking backwards and find ways to punish you for treating them wrong. So it's a great question, and this is one that I get the most from our clients, is how do I make sure while I make these changes I don't get sued? Well, the reality is you can't prevent it, but you can do everything you can to have people looking forward and partnering with you during this change. In that prevention, do they have to purchase technology or a system to help achieve compliance? I mean, how do they help achieve this compliance? So good, good question. I mean, you don't need a technology to do it. So you, there's nothing to purchase. You don't have to go through any process of changing technologies to achieve compliance. You simply need to, and I don't mean simply as it's easy, but you simply need to perform a job analysis and a review of each of your job descriptions and your positions and determine how you've classified the employee as exempt or not exempt. And it, it is important to note here, since you bring up technology, you know, a lot of organizations work with payroll vendors. Uh, and there's thousands of payroll vendors that they can work with. And these payroll vendors have technologies and, and systems called human resource information systems. Um, but a lot of times I'll have a client or a company say, well, our payroll company said it's OK to pay them this way. Really think about that. If you look at your contracts, if you look at your agreements, if you talk with your payroll vendor, you will learn that the payroll vendor does not give advice or advise the employer how to classify their employees. They are simply processing payroll that's provided. So whether you've had 1099s as independent contractors on your payroll incorrectly and illegally misclassified, or whether you have exempt people who really are not exempt misclassified, it is not the payroll provider's responsibility to classify your employees. It's their responsibility to pay who you've asked them to pay and to impound taxes, file your tax returns uh, and, and your 941 tax filings, your quarterly reports. So Ask your payroll vendor, because if you think they're the ones that are, are telling you you're compliant, uh, you're mistaken, because it's the employer's responsibility to define and classify their employees. So uh, it's not a technology that needs to be purchased, but technology often maybe will help you track, uh, help you manage or help you maintain the classification. But for the most part, it can all be done manually. You just have your job descriptions, you have paper, you interview, you evaluate the tasks and duties of a position, you do a comprehensive job analysis on the tasks and responsibilities, you compare that to the duties test, uh, and then you just document your results so that you have some proven documentation that demonstrates you took a, the time and effort to evaluate the position and defend why you've classified it as either non-exempt or exempt. So, Catherine, that's really what you're doing. At the end of the day, if you if you have an audit or if you're sued, you want to show that you went through a comprehensive process and you've documented and you thought about it to classify this position and try to defend it. It doesn't mean your defense of the position will be correct, but at least you show that you went through a process and they 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 rarely will find you willfully guilty if you went through that process and simply just made a mistake. So what is the most critical step? to consider to protect your business as these changes do take place? It's, it, the, the most critical thing is to recognize that um, you're in the mix. You're part of this. Every company uh, that has employees in the U.S. is uh, exposed to these changes with the FLSA. You know, profit, nonprofit organizations all over. I mean, there's not many organizations that don't fall under the scope of the Fair Labor Standards Act uh, simply because some of the language that makes an entity 
fall under these regulations is whether or not you have uh, interstate commerce. And as long as we have cell phones and as long as we're doing things online or on the Internet, uh, that almost applies. So um, assume you're covered under the FLSA as an employer uh, and then immediately consider what was your process to classify your employees? If you if you're thinking as you listen to this whole um, uh, radio session that what do I mean by exempt and non-exempt, it, it's time to research it and look at how you've classified your workforce. Uh, if you understand the exempt and non-exempt, it's time and it's critical to understand what the changes are that are coming and how they impact your business. But truly, if you are listening to this wondering, what are they talking about FLSA? What are they talking about exempt, non-exempt? It's time to reach out to your uh, experts in your field, uh, either HR professionals, HR on your team, your employment attorneys, or those that can help you understand what this risk is for your business and how to correct it. It's it, these these FLSA issues can be fixed. They can be corrected. It's not like inclusion where you hope the culture changes, that you hope these initiatives um, produce the results you want. I mean, it has to be engaging on both the leadership side and the employee side, and they have to collaborate. From the FLSA, the rules are pretty uh, defined. What you have to do is defined. It's just making sure that you're doing it to protect your business. And so the most critical step is think about protecting your business today and, uh, and move forward with appropriate steps to do that. Great advice. Warren, I have a question. What if somebody's listening and they are at a small business and they are listening to this and they're starting to panic and they're thinking, I need to start researching this right now? What's the first place that you think that they should go to start researching it? If they're starting to Google this or whatever, what's the first place they should start looking right away? Yeah, no, great question. And a lot of people are probably squirming in their seats as they listen to this. Mm -hmm. um, this is not to scare people. It's to advise them and inform right. them. But so do not Google this topic because if you okay. do, you're going to land on blogs. You're going to land on different law firms giving different advice. And then it's going to be. Yeah. They're going to end up down a rabbit hole or something. So yes. where should they go? DOL.gov. Go directly okay. to the Department of Labor's website. So DOL.gov. And then under agency, you want to go to the wage and hour division. And there are tons of resources. There are FLSA guidebooks. There are FLSA fact sheets. There are guidance documents. There is actually an interactive um, tool where you can answer questions and walk through a process that will help you determine whether or not your employee is exempt or not exempt. I caution you, just like the Department of Labor will caution you that it's not the end all be all legal advice. So these are just going to give you mm -hmm. tools and resources to help you navigate and give you more understanding. But you really do want subject matter experts to actually look on a case by case basis, your workforce, your industry, because just like I'm saying, there's a lot of information, a wealth of information out there. Most of the listeners that are going to be feeling like they got to quickly research don't know what they don't know. Therefore, they don't know what to ask. They don't know what they're looking for. And right. so it's a good place to start increasing your awareness so that you know how to right. ask better questions. Thank you so much, Warren. Thank you from, for joining us from Symbian's HR. Catherine, it was a pleasure being here today. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. And thanks to our audience for tuning in to First Talk Compliance. You can learn more about our show on our programs page on healthcarenowradio.com. And lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at FirstHCC or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. You can also email me at Catherine Short at FirstHCC.com. I'm Catherine Short of First Healthcare Compliance. Remember, compliance is the key to achieving 
peace of mind.